Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian. This is Science Weekly from The Guardian, and I'm Shivani Dave. On Tuesday, we heard an episode from the Archive about the history of national parks and the challenges that they face. Today, we're listening to part two. My colleagues explore the impact that national parks can have on Indigenous communities and the biodiversity surrounding them. Hello, I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston. We're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian, and we're working together on a project called Age of Extinction. All our work centres around one topic, catastrophic biodiversity loss and ways we can tackle it. This week is a pilot, but if you like us, let us know, and hopefully each month we'll bring you more stories from our beat to Science Weekly. Check out our last episode for part one, where we delved into the origins of the national park movement in the UK and the US, because... They're not doing as well for nature as you might think. But this episode, we're expanding our horizons because last week, world leaders came together virtually for a first of its kind UN summit on biodiversity. The British government is absolutely committed to tackling biodiversity loss. And many of those leaders made a pledge for nature. It's why we helped to shape this leader's pledge. From Belgium. Climate change and the loss of biodiversity have devastating consequences. To Bolivia, ratifica su compromiso de protección y preservación. Sweden, it's time to act, to save our life support system. To Bhutan, that is why I'm a big fan of this global pledge. Canada, for the health of nature and for the health of our citizens, we must do no less. To Kenya, it's not just a moral issue, but it is also a question of survival. For all of us. Alongside this pledge, governments are negotiating a new set of biodiversity targets for the next decade. As things stand, it will place 30% of the world's oceans and land under environmental protection. But that figure of 30% could have some unintended consequences. And that's what we'll be looking at today. 
Of course, I was born in a place called Sogo in more forest complex. Daniel Kabe is an indigenous land rights campaigner, an executive director of the Ogyek People's Development Programme. With my late father, we used to go and hunt. A Kenyan-based NGO working to secure the land rights of the indigenous Ogyek community. Uh, and anytime the schools were closed, we could stay for two weeks. And, and with my brother, who is a teacher right now. He's telling me about the Mao Forest Complex in Western Kenya, where he was born. So we, I have a lot of connection with that forest and, and, and I still feel and, and I always feel bad when I see some of the areas we used to go when we were young and that they have been destroyed and they, they've been cut down, the trees have been cut down. So these are some of the things which I find it very, very important. The Ogiek people are an indigenous hunter-gatherer community living within the forest. Yes, we have a lot of emotional and spiritual attachment because of the f- kind of forest we have been brought up there. Because that is where we have all our shrines, that's where we have, we used to pray during incision, we go and get some some uh, specific uh, plans due for, for incision purposes, all kinds of ceremonies involved using of, of all sorts of trees, shrubs. So we, we have a lot of, lots of attachment with the forest and with the fauna and flora. The interest of the Ogi community has been to have full ownership of more forest complex. And, and that the, this is the, the ancestral land where the, the ancestors have been buried. This is where we, we were born. My great-grandfather was born there. And, and hence, we feel this is the environment which fits us well as an indigenous community here in Kenya. In 2017... The Ogiek community won an eight-year court battle against the government's plan to evict them from their ancestral land in the Mao Forest. The reason behind the government's attempt to evict the community? Land conservation. The Kenya Forest Service say this is a conservation area or a protected area for government forest. So we have been struggling. When the African Court of Human and People's Rights handed down the ruling... They said the Kenyan government had violated the rights of the Ogiek people. The court declares that the respondent has violated Articles 1, 2, 8, 14. The ruling was that Mao Forest Complex is the ancestral home, that the Ogiek are the indigenous peoples of Kenya, and that the, the, the Ogiek were not the one which, which destroyed the Mao Forest Complex, but it was government who was foreseeing all kinds of destruction. In other words, they were recognized and their prayers were heard. Despite the ruling, Ogiek ownership of the land has been far from assured. And, and worst of all, they, they even res- most recently, there have been an eviction, even evicting Ogiek despite having won the the, the case at the African court. The only thing is that the government say, oh, we, we comply, we will respect. But for now, three years, nothing has happened. The only thing is our promises, just promise on a note that we will do it, we will do it. But in, in reality, nothing is happening. So there have been a lot for the community. So they are feeling that they have been rejected. They have not been given what they deserve as they are. after they won the the, the case. According to Human Rights Watch, since 2018, Kenyan authorities, including officers from the Kenya Wildlife Service and the Kenya Forest Service, have evicted more than 50,000 people 
from the Mao forest lands, including members of the Odget community. Those carrying out the evictions are accused of using violence and excessive force. The rationale behind those evictions? Conservation and saving the forest ecosystem, which the government says is under threat from illegal settlement and deforestation. They have no concern about whether the community are well protected or not. All their uh, concern is their work or their task to, to do as government officials. Much of this ongoing dispute comes down to a failure of the Kenya Forest Service to see Daniel and his people as protectors of the forest. Instead, arguing that the role of the protector is theirs and that it can only be done properly once the Ogyek have been removed. This has been the discussion by the Kenya Forest Service or the Kenyan government that they don't trust the indigenous peoples, that they can be best conservationists, they can be the the best to protect the forest. And, and, and we have tried to show them, even we have even conserved some hundreds of acres ourselves as, as in my organization to, to try and prove and give a model to the government that you give us a chance, we can do it. You give us a chance to protect the forest, we will do it. But unfortunately, we realize that they don't seem to, to trust that the Ogig can protect or can uh, preserve and protect the forest. But this is not true. It's only that they always think no indigenous people. We have tried to, to tell them of models which have happened globally, that indigenous people, given a chance, they can be the best conservationists. Because for the object, they have seen the forest as home. It is like a supermarket for them. It is where they get their medicine. It's where they get their food. It's where they get that kind of solace feeling, a, a place where you feel comfortable to be. So they will definitely protect when they are given a chance to do it by the government. Daniel, do you think indigenous voices are being left out of the global conversation about national parks? Yes, it is. They are being ignored because one of the reasons is that whenever there is any conversation, they seem to be having an upper hand. So the best way to avoid them is not to have them on board. And, and you could find that some conservation, despite some communities like the Maasai in Kenya, they are having uh, conservancies, what you call uh, community conservancies, where they have their own forest. But the intention of some government plans is not to have them at all. And, and it is common in other parts of Africa, even towards even areas like Namibia and Botswana and the rest. And you could say that the, 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 some of the Bushmen, they are not consulted. So the, the issue here is that most of the indigenous communities are not consulted when cycling are happening. Last episode, you heard from Christy Brigham. Chief of Resource Management and Science for Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. The US has its own complicated history of dispossessed native people. But according to Christy, indigenous knowledge is a critical element of the future of its national parks. We have a long way to go. Thankfully, our tribal partners are some of the kindest, most gracious, wise people that I have the pleasure of working with. We are meeting with tribal partners and talking about things like indigenous burning and gathering and protection of and nurturing of 
basketry materials and we are trying to find ways to continue to have tribal stewardship on parts of our landscape and with us. So I would say right now it's mainly conversations and trying to learn more about how the many tribes that lived here and continue to care for this land and come in and spend time in the parks and keep an eye on the berry bushes and let us know when the oaks are looking bad. And it's, it's a series of conversations and I am really hopeful that in the next decade, those conversations will become shared stewardship projects where we're able to work together and have tribal members helping us take care of these lands once again, especially given the long history of European exclusion of Native Americans from these lands. Ahead of the UN Biodiversity Summit, Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, also backed the Leaders' Pledge for Nature. As a sign of our steadfast commitment to halt and reverse biodiversity loss and put nature and our ecosystems on a path to its recovery by 2030. So, Patrick, how does the Okiek community feel about that figure? I did ask Daniel about that. Unless our communities are allowed to, to participate or rather to be involved and have pre-informed consent of what is happening, I think it will be a dangerous move uh, for, for the indigenous peoples because most of these are geared towards the scientific approaches, but the indigenous peoples are not allowed or given a chance to really divine how much because the 30% who came up with a calculation and how big is the 30% and how is it affecting indigenous peoples. What, what role should indigenous voices play in this process in, in conservation efforts and in, and in national parks? In many cases, they should be allowed to decide for themselves. They should be allowed to decide what belongs to them. There should be a paradigm shift completely to allow the Ogie or the other indigenous communities or forest-dwelling communities to spearhead conservation. It's really interesting what Daniel's saying because, as we heard in the last episode with John Muir, conservation has typically been a top-down approach. And we're hearing with all of these 30% pledges, the creation of national parks and wild spaces, and it's all coming from above. But I guess Daniel's flipping that and saying we need to think about grassroots groups looking after their local land. Absolutely. I mean, you and I the other day when we were covering the UN summit on on biodiversity, listening to world leaders talk about how it, important it is to, to protect large areas of the world. We heard from the Chinese leaders, Xi Jinping, Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, and then suddenly an Indian indigenous youth activist, Archana Sareng, Shocked, actually, I think it's, it's fair to say mm. the the summit by saying this target could be the biggest land grab in history. Reducing millions of people to landless poverty, all in the name of conservation. Removing us from our land in order to protect nature is deeply colonial and environmentally damaging. We should be the leaders of conservation, not victims of it. There was lots of good talk, but actually... These leaders thus far have completely failed. Almost, I think, every single one of them has failed 
to look after biodiversity. So I guess you kind of doubt like what makes us think that this model is now going to work going forward, given its historic record, which is pretty depressing. Some of the facts and figures around the importance of indigenous communities to biodiversity are, are really, really stark. Indigenous communities only account for a 20th of the human population, but they support around 80% of the planet's biodiversity. And that's a stat from the World Bank. Even in the UK, that 30% target alone isn't necessarily going to help. Kate Jennings came to the same conclusion. So at the moment, the UK government includes both national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty in the area of land that is protected in the UK for nature. Kate, in case you need a reminder, is the head of sites and species policy at the RSPB. That is misleading because at the moment they're not primarily managed for nature and the statistics show they're not doing well for nature. I guess if we are to commit to that uh, 30% by 2030 target for protected areas, then then we will need national parks amongst other places to do much, much more for nature. And I guess, again, the, the comparison with the rest of the world is that in other parts of the world, there are larger areas of much wilder, less intensively managed habitat, which it kind of starts in a better place for nature. Our national parks are starting in quite a bad place for nature. And so they need a lot of investment and a lot of effort to make them better for nature, to make them really drive nature's recovery. This pledge could be only the beginning, just one step on a journey of many miles. We must turn these words into action. Most of the leaders do not know Maybe if, if you have been in New York or in London and you are talking about a forest which you have never seen, you may not really know what we are talking about. But if you allow the person from Mao Forest or from, from uh, one of the forests in Brazil or somewhere, you'll be able to get the exact what forest are we talking about, that they should support indigenous peoples in protecting the forest. They should allow them and give enough budgets to support indigenous peoples because they are, many times when they want to do things, they have shortcomings because one, they do not have the funds to do things which can be able to protect even their livelihood and even in conservation. So they should be allowed that the people who are there are the ones who have the knowledge if the evictions of the Ogyek people continue, what does Kenya stand to lose? What does the world stand to lose? That's a very direct question because I cannot say it is Ogyek to lose, not, not, not Kenya, because they are doing it for their own interest. Is that they will only lose a future of a community, a tradition, who will only remain in the books of history that there used to be a community. They have lost a big tradition and, and, and traditional knowledge, which is there, which they could use for, for, for posterity. Phoebe, that was quite a damning picture of national parks around the world and in the UK. So we were looking into the question, are national parks failing nature? And the answer is yes, they are. I think lots of people, and myself included, had thought for a long time that national parks must be good for nature because there weren't humans in them, they're amazing open expanses. But the more you dig into the topic, the more you realise that there are some serious flaws in the way that they're run at the moment. We can't have this conversation about protecting biodiversity and making sure these are areas where nature thrives without speaking to the indigenous communities that actually live in these areas. Really, we need to look at 
what the phrase means a little bit more. These are national parks, these are an expression of a country's relationship with nature in many ways, and that needs to be taken more seriously. Links to the latest reporting on conservation from The Guardian are on the podcast's webpage. Next week, we are keeping the focus on climate change and the environment. We will be delving into the archive again to showcase some of our favourite episodes, including a hilarious one with a conservation biologist who is dedicating her life to saving big cats in the wild. If you've got any thoughts, feedback or episode ideas for when we come back, drop us a message at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Bye for now. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 